We are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, a series of teaching clumped together or drawn together by Matthew in chapters 5 to 7 of his book. We began the journey last week, and I'd like you to turn to that passage of the scriptures again with me this morning, Matthew chapter 5. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you. When people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you wouldn't mind turning to the Gospel of Luke, please. Chapter 6. And draw your eye down to verse 17. This is Jesus. He came down with them and stood on a level place. Not a mountain, a level place. Of course, it could be the same moment. Two mountains can have a level place between them. It's not a contradiction. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon, they had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him. For power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. (laughs) 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. The Beatitudes, recorded in Matthew chapter 5 from verse 3 to verse 11, are an enigma. They are promises of hope to the hopeless, comfort to the mourning, strength to the weak. But they're challenging. They're upsetting. They are dismantling. Actually, if you read them on face value, they should be angering. Because of the way in which they're written, they, they seem to heap pain on pain for those whose lives are not going as they would have hoped or anticipated. And there has to be a way of reading these promises, these assurances, these words of comfort in a way that actually brings comfort to our lives. If you read them carefully, you will understand what I mean. If you look at the comparison between what Matthew records Jesus is saying and Luke records Jesus is saying, there are significant differences. In Matthew's, it looks like they are promises around spiritual life. Although that shouldn't be taken for granted. In Luke's account, there is no hungering after righteousness. There is no pursuing. There is simply a description of the hungry, the poor, and the excluded. And promises of grace and assurance and comfort to them. And for years, the church has been arguing about how to read these words. And yet, I'm not sure that the argument is particularly helpful because I think that they can be read in different ways that can help us today in the 21st century who are followers of Jesus to live faithfully and that can speak to people whose lives have been marked by exclusion, poverty, alienation, rejection and marginalisation. I don't know whether you fall into either of those camps today, but for a few moments I want to reflect on these Beatitudes generally. Over the next few weeks, we're going to go through them more slowly, line by line. But I want to take the eight promises of Matthew's gospel today and the Beatitudes and help you to understand how they might apply into your life and into my life. To do so, I need to do a little bit of theology with you. I want to talk to you about something called hermeneutics for a moment. That simply means that the way that we examine a, a text in the Bible has to be faithful. We've got to work out a, a science, a process, a way of reading the Bible that makes sense, that takes what was said and helps us to live it. 
It means that we must examine the first meaning of the words that we are reading in order to understand the meaning for today. You can't change it. You can't dream up a meaning that isn't in the text. You can't give it something that isn't there. It also means that we need to be faithful to it. Whatever it meant then, it still means in the same contexts. And if we are to be faithful to the meaning of the Bible as we read it, we've got to wrestle with it to try and find out what it means. That means we can't dream up new ideas. We can't change it. We can't dilute it. We can't make it into something that it isn't. There might be fresh and new um, levels of understanding from a text that we get because of living in 2020 rather than in 20 or 30 AD. But those fresh and new meanings will not or cannot contradict what the text originally meant. What it meant then, it still means. You and I just have to do the work of trying to work out what it means. And that's hard work. An awful lot of people, I think, come to church just to get a little message of hope and a pick-me-up, like a kind of extended version of an everyday with Jesus. Don't ask me to think, don't ask me to reflect, don't ask me to be honest, don't ask me to do any hard work, but that's not how <clears throat> studying the text of Scripture works. When you and I come to God's Word, we need to bring our imaginations, we need to bring our creativity, we need to bring our thinking, and you need to bring your life. Have you ever heard somebody saying, it always drives me just a little bit mad when they open a meeting? Now just leave everything that you brought with you at the door. Leave all your worries, leave all your anxieties, as if you carry them about in a bag. And you can make a decision on the way in that says, okay, I'm not going to worry about my sick family or my money or my family or my children or my future or my... All. I can just lift that off and leave it there and wander away from it. It's a nonsense. And nowhere in the scriptures are you asked to do that. What we're asked to do is bring ourselves, bring our worries, bring our anxieties, bring our fears, bring our uncertainties. We don't have to pretend that we don't have them. We don't have to hide them somewhere as if they are an irrelevance. You will read the Bible through the text of your brokenness. You'll read it through the text of your longing, your questions, your uncertainty. And who you are today is not the same as the person that you might be next week or the week after or the week after or the week after. And that means every time you read a text, if you bring yourself to it, you can discover new things about it. And new things about God. I, on a Sunday morning, at um, around 8.15 or 8.30, do an online teaching session. We just started through the book of Hebrews. And I was reflecting on a few verses from Hebrews this morning. There are several thousand people watch it each week. And as I was reflecting on it, I found this deep sense of emotion and thankfulness rising in me again about a text that I have reflected on hundreds of times over the years, but I was touched by it in a fresh way today, and I don't really know why. I just brought myself to the text, and I allowed it to speak into me. You might know the Sermon on the Mount back to front. Somebody emailed me last week. I encouraged you to memorize it. Uh, last week and to take that seriously and one of the young men in our fellowship sent me a message saying I'm going to do that and here's an article that I found that really helps me about the power of memorization the problem with a text like the Beatitudes is you think you know everything about it you've read it so often that you think that there's nothing to discover in it it's there it's in our consciousness it bounces about in our minds 
But to read it as it was given, almost an impossible task, but let's do our best. To try and understand what it might mean today because of what it meant then might give us fresh light. It's a good principle for any reading of the Bible. The famous um, Indian, Anglo-Indian poet <clears throat> Rudyard Kipling, who also wrote The Jungle Book, uh, once wrote this, I keep six honest serving men. They, teach, they taught me all I know. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. When you read a text, ask those six questions. What, where, when, why, how, who? And it'll help you to understand it. So as you read the um, Beatitudes, what's going on? Who's saying it? Who's present? Why are they saying it? Where are they saying it? How is it said? And how can that speak into our lives today? When he saw the crowds, he went up a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them with these words. In fact, in Greek, what you read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 is, he opened his mouth. What a way to start your public teaching ministry. From Matthew 1 through to Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus is recorded as engaging in some conversation, but these are the first public words. This is announcing a different way of looking at the world. An upside down kingdom in which the least become the most, in which the rejected become the accepted, in which the lost become the found, in which the desperate are satisfied. He's saying something that brings profound hope to people who have been locked out of Jewish systems and structures for all of their lives because they weren't the right kind of people. At the same time, when you read what Luke says, you realize that he's deeply challenging the religious. Those that read Luke 6 to suggest that Jesus says being wealthy is wrong are misreading the text. What he is saying in Luke chapter 6 is to those that are using their wealth to control and to manipulate, to those that are using their religious knowledge to hold people down, to those that are telling others that they are not accepted because they're not like them. There's been a death knoll announced in the ministry of Jesus. He has come for those that are excluded. He's reaching out to those who have been told they're not allowed to approach God. He's creating a space for a whole society that has been fractured by division and suspicion. And when you combine Matthew 5 and, Matthew, and Luke 6 and begin to think about what these texts might mean, you discover something remarkable. You see, there are two fundamental ways of understanding the Beatitudes. One is that they are a spiritual journey. One is that they are physical promises. Those that read Luke 6 and give it priority tend to suggest that these are physical promises to the poor, to the vulnerable, and to the excluded, to those that are politically locked out of society. Those that read Matthew 5 and give it priority suggest that these are about spiritual practices that help you become closer and closer and closer of your understanding and your understanding of who God is and how he loves you. But what if you don't have to choose? What if the Beatitudes say something in both situations that you can lock into today and that can give you hope and you comfort and you courage and those around us? Let me read Matthew 5 from the message, the, translate, the paraphrase by the American Presbyterian minister, Eugene Peterson. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. 
Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And then he teaches them who they are and how they are to connect with God. I said last week the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to followers of Jesus, not just as individuals, but as a community, but it has an impact on all who want to be in relationship with God. The whole of Matthew 5 to 7 is addressed to those who are apprenticed to Jesus, not to wider society, not to the wider world. So who were these original people that heard this? They were the locked out. They were the excluded. They were the ones that weren't good enough in many ways for formal Judaism. As you follow Jesus' ministry, you see that he attracts people with a generic term in English translated as sinners. The word actually means the group of people of the land. It is those that are a kind of... um, sociological grouping who are are locked out because of where they come from or their family name or their professions or their education. They don't fit in. And it's them that Jesus lives with. It's them that Jesus walks amongst. It's them that Jesus spends most of his time with. His language with the religious leaders of the day is one of challenge, one of confrontation and invitation into a new life. But he spends his life with those who have been told by the religious system that they're They don't fit in and they should go away. So the Beatitudes are addressed to a group of people who are already not fitting in. And what about this idea of being blessed? The Greek word means deeply happy. It's not a word that means a kind of profound and unseen satisfaction. Eight times, Jesus says, you're blessed. Blessed, in emotional terms, let me give you a a physical demonstration, an embodiment of what blessed looks like. You watching? Yay! Now read it. Open your Bibles and read it. And read what Jesus says. You should go, yay, when you're broken. You should go, yay, when you lose someone you love. Getting offensive yet? You should go, yay, when people are laughing at you. It is a profoundly confrontational set of instructions and if you've ever had a broken heart if you've ever felt as if you've got nothing to contribute if you have ever been the kid that I was and I know it's a stupid illustration standing in a line in a gym when the team is getting picked and everybody else is picked except you anybody been there and when you're left The PE teacher turns to the captains that are collecting the teams and says, who's having him? And they both say, would rather not, thanks. If you've ever felt like that, and then you read this, and you're invited into this kind of celebration of that, you understand what that feels like and how difficult it can be. That doesn't just happen in life, that happens in churches. If you've been the person that is excluded from a group, 
because they've known each other for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. If you're the new person in our church family and you consistently try to get into communities and you keep getting locked out, the people that locked you out are wrong. The God that invites you in is right. And in the end, you can understand why this pressure can rise, this sense of, oh my goodness, how am I supposed to clap and celebrate when my life is falling apart? What does that mean? What does that look like? These Beatitudes have two sets of meanings. The physical meaning is there's a place for the poor in God's family. God welcomes those who are rejected and excluded by the religious. The physical state of a person doesn't show the spiritual state of a person. I remember being in a meeting once and somebody standing beside me that was quite a big meeting and he turned to me and he said, you can tell those that are really spirit-led here. I said, oh, how can you do that? He said, look at the people that have raised their hands. And I said, how does that equate to being spiritually alive? Sounds like Corinthians to me. When you speak in tongues, you're spiritual and when you don't, you're not. Paul had quite strong words about that, don't you think? What Jesus says here is there is a place for those who feel as if they don't fit in, who feel as if they're not allowed, to whom the doors are locked by friendship groups. But there's also a spiritual meaning that we can understand our absolute dependence on God, that our hunger dictates our growth, not our standing or our status. That you can be a new Christian and grow quicker than somebody that's been a Christian 50 years because you're hungrier. That's not the length of time you've been in the church that determines the rate of your growth. It's the depth of your hunger for the grace of God. And it is possible to sit in a church and see people who've been saved 50 years, 60 years, 30 years, 20 years, stuck. And people who've been saved six months flying past them in terms of spiritual maturity because they're hungry. Which do you and I fall into? That God's kingdom comes to those who look to him, who depend on him. Some years ago I wrote a book called Building a Better World in which I set out some of the differences between these two meanings and why they matter. Open your Bible again, put your finger against um, Matthew chapter 5 and listen as I try to help you understand what some of the physical meanings, we'll come back to them in greater detail, might be. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor people matter to God, and he is on their side. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Grief and pain may be part of life, but there is always hope in Christ. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Power will be given to those who should have it, not those who think they deserve it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled The call to strive for justice in the world is a good thing and it will eventually work. God wins in the end. Blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Compassionate action will always evoke compassionate response. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. Building bridges between communities that are fractured is a vital part of being a follower of Jesus Christ and it reflects God's heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
When we stand with the excluded, we will be excluded. When we speak out for the poor, we will be treated like the poor. When we identify with the rejected, we will live with their rejection too. That's what happens. But God is on our side. And that makes all the difference. Now go through them again and let me outline to you what I might suggest is a spiritual meaning for these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. We feel our need of God and we are met with God's character and purposes when we're honest about our brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When we are truly repentant, God forgives us. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When we become teachable, we can grow. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When we become hungry for God, he satisfies us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Having experienced forgiveness, our automatic response is to be forgiving. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we continue in our journey of spirituality and following God, we long to be more like him. And he draws us to himself. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. A key element of Christian growth is longing for other people to enter into the relationship of peace with God that you have discovered. You cannot separate mission and evangelism from discipleship. When you have experienced this grace, you want others to be called sons and daughters of God too. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we seek to offer grace and life and hope to other people, the religious attack us, society attacks us, and we become persecuted too. But God is still with us. There's a spiral. A spiral for you as a follower of Jesus that begins with an acknowledgement of our own brokenness. And as we acknowledge our brokenness, we walk through these principles of spiritual growth. Look at them again. Mark them. Think about it this week. Allow it to kind of dig into your soul and into your heart. Step one in Christian life is we feel our need of God. Step two is we are repentant. Step three is we are teachable. Step four is we are hungry. Step five is we experience forgiveness. Step six is we long to follow him. Step seven is we long for others to know him. And step eight is we live lives so that others can see him. And the cycle begins again because our world rejects us. The Beatitudes is an invitation to every person in this room and watching online who have been told that you're not good enough for God, that you are excluded because of your color or your creed or your background or your gender or your outlook or your politics. God welcomes you. He wants to have a relationship with you. This read by a group of people living in a slum in Bangladesh Five or six, no, 15 or 16 years ago, as I taught them from this, caused the whole community to stand on old tables and chairs and start to dance. A bit like that. 
I've watched the reaction to these words in Uganda, in South Africa, in Cambodia, in India, in Pakistan, in Syria, in South America, in Ecuador, in the poorest of communities where people have been told that they're not good enough and they're not welcome. When you read these words and say, you are invited, something changes in the room. It's like a breathing hole opens. What does that look like in Northern Ireland? What does it look like in a Pentecostal evangelical church? You are welcome here. There is space for you here. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter your educational level. It doesn't matter. God is here with open arms for you. Who wouldn't want to be part of that community? You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to fit in with me. You just have to let him love you. And when he loves you, oh my goodness, something changes in your soul. This is a challenge to those of us that think that we have been called by God to be his gatekeepers. When did God ask you to be a gatekeeper? Who gave you or me the right to be the gatekeeper of God's kingdom. Aren't we its ambassadors? Called to invite the broken and the lost and the rejected into the family? You meet them every day in work. You sit beside them on the glider. You deliver parcels to them sometimes. You teach them in school. You treat them in clinics. You move their stuff around at the docks. You take phone calls from them. You talk over the garden fence to them. You watch them visiting their loved ones when you're visiting your loved ones in hospitals and nursing homes. You see the rejection in their eyes when they come to a parents' evening for a child with additional needs and look at you with eyes that say, nobody will ever want to be friends with me. Nobody will ever invite me into their home. You see it in the eyes of those who leave meetings alone again. Because nobody spoke to them. Nobody wanted to have a conversation with them. And nobody made space for them. That's the hope. The physical, actual hope of the Beatitudes to communities that feel excluded or individuals that feel cut out. But then there is this powerful hope to you and to me, followers of Jesus, who are on a continual journey of growth and learning. You're always wanting to grow and develop and know our own brokenness and are aware of our own sinfulness and want to be different. Listen to the message's version of these remarkable things. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you embrace the one who is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more and no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal that you'll ever eat. Our lives are transformed. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. Then... That's when you discover who you really are and, that, and what your place is in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. 
The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Let me tell you why you are here. Jesus goes on. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the world. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and you'll end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to bring out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We are going public with this. As public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to put you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a lampstand. Now that I've put you on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. This generous Father in heaven. So in the end, the Beatitudes is an invitation into authenticity. It's an invitation to a table where there's a seat with your name on it. It's a welcome to the community of God. It's a, there's space for you to those that have always felt like an inconvenience. And it's not just a call to individuals. It's a call to a church. It's a call to a community like ours. But it's also a call for a personal walk with God that continually goes deeper and never gets stuck. One of the words that we are using this year here in our church family, the word that is centering our thinking is grow. We're not done growing yet. Any of us. I left my study this morning, went to make myself a cup of coffee. I have this little rhythm Debbie cooks a Sunday roast in our house every week. I don't know how she does it. Every Sunday, even with a broken arm, a broken wrist. And I go in and say, good morning. She says, good morning. Matthew comes down the stairs and says, how did it go this morning with your podcast? And I tell him and I make a cup of coffee and leave it to plunge for a minute and go to the door, watch the dogs, come back. I'm a bit of a creature of routine. And as I was doing it this morning, I just had this profound sense in my heart that was saying, there's so much more of God for me to discover. I feel as if I'm starting my Christian life all over again. That there is a hugeness and, about the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God. And I'm invited into it. And I have this 34 years of being a Christian. I, obviously, I honestly, I wrote this down in my journal this morning. 34 years of being a Christian. And I feel as if I've just taken the smallest tip of my little finger with the lightest touch and scratched it across the top of the Bible. And I'm like, there's so much more to know. There's so much more to discover. There's so much more to encounter. And I want to be a person who is like that, don't you? Don't you think you can see it in their eyes? People that love God and want to grow as, a people, as opposed to people that love God and want you to know. <laughs> this sense of possibility where on those eight steps are you stuck have you recognized your need of God step one or not maybe you need him afresh today have you turned from your sin morning step two 
Or have you got one foot still in it? You regret it, but you don't repent from it. You want to live in it and enjoy God. Well, you can't. That's your choice. If you want to enjoy God, you've got to turn toward him. I can't do that for you. Have you experienced his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace in your life? Have you allowed yourself to share that grace and mercy with those around you? Are you living in these beautiful, beautiful moments of instruction and hunger and thirst for God? Or are you one of the people that locks others out? That never wants anybody to come in. There's nothing wrong with being close to others in the Christian community. There's something wrong with locking other people out, though. A church that locks people out will not grow. A ministry that locks people out will not grow. And a friendship group that locks people out will die. So I invite you to discover the amazing grace that is available in God as we open our lives up to him and to one another. Amen. Amen. And where is all of this seen? This upside down kingdom most powerfully. Where do we see the weak gaining victory? Where do we see the excluded becoming the gateway for hope? Where do we see sorrow transformed to joy? Where in the biblical story do we see sadness swallowed by God and turned into a moment of possibility? At the cross, Christ who was rich, Paul says, yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. In the same letter, Paul says this, he who knew no sin became sin for you so that through him words I will never understand, you might become the righteousness of God. The cross and the empty tomb is the moment of great reversal when the locked out are called in, when the rejected are accepted, when the broken are healed, And when those who live with mourning are given space to be honest and don't have to have everything together.